might be a good time now that we've come to the end of the book of 2 Corinthians and we're going to start to study the book of Romans to just give a little bit of a perspective of where we've been and where we are right now. I started, I don't remember when, it has to be years now, in a study in the Sunday school on Paul. And we began with his life and we traced it through the book of Acts and through his letters and tried to piece together something of his life and, and ministry from his call and conversion or even before in terms of the factors that went into his, um, into his uh, pre- pre- preparation, even in unbelief as a, as a Jew and as a Roman and as a, someone who uh, knew the Greek language uh, and knew the Greek culture uh, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, then we began to look at his letters. So moving from life, we've come to letters. And at this point, we're going to start the fifth of the le- uh, sixth of the letter. And we're trying to do it in chronological order, in the order of what, when, when he might have written the letters. And probably the earliest was the book of Galatians, although some say Thessalonian, Thessalonican correspondence. But I think it was Galatians that w- was written pretty close on to the end of that first missionary journey, and I believe it was to the churches of Galatia that was in the, so- the southern province of Galatia, to the churches of um, Iconium, Lystra, Derby that he uh, visited and planted churches in, in his first missionary journey. And um, then we moved on to the uh, Thessalonican correspondence. Again, we remember that's the second missionary journey. He first went to uh, over the places where he went the first time and uh, strengthened the churches. And uh, then we read that uh, he looked to go up north to um, Mysia, south to Bithynia. I think I got that right. Maybe it's the other way. But he sought to go north and the Spirit suffered him not. He sought to go, sought to go south. And uh, the Lord... Uh, just forbade him, and then he comes to the coast to Troas, and he has a vision in the night of the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And they crossed the Aegean, they went to Macedonia, in, in what is Asia today, in, in, in modern, well actually there's a country now that's called Macedonia, how much it accords with uh, Philip the, the Macedonian and Alexander the Great, uh, and then that region that was called Macedonia. Uh, under the Romans, um, that's up for for debate, but um, it's in that region that Paul came in Greece, and uh, we read he then went to Berea and then Thessalonica and uh, planted the, the church there. But persecution followed him, and uh, so he writes the first letter to the Thessalonians, and then we studied that the second letter to the Thessalonians, and then the uh, correspondence to the Corinthians. I think I said last week, just off the cuff, and I was wrong, of, of course, that the Corinthian letter, or the Corinthian church was founded on the second missionary, the third missionary journey, but it was the second. Because he came down from Macedonia, down to, the, to uh, Berea, Thessalonica, and then he came down to um, Athens, and then he came down to the end of the part of Greece, where uh, there's that little isthmus, it's called, the isthmus of Corinth. I've had a map, I could show it to you clearly. And then there's that bottom part, it's called the Peloponnese, and uh, that's the bottom part of Greece. Modern map, you'll see the same thing. You'll see the Greece has two parts to it, and then in the middle there's an isthmus, and on the one side is the Aegean, the other side is the Adriatic, and um, it's in that isthmus that Corinth stood. And so Paul began the year and a half ministry, 18 months he spent at Corinth. And then we have all the events that happened after his leaving, the painful visit, 
that he had, the hard, the difficult letter that he wrote to them, the, the problems that came between them that warranted the second letter. And so we've studied those letters, and now we come to the book of Romans. And again, it's likely that Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth, when he was in Corinth. Uh, and um, because you have, uh, in chapter 16, he mentions Phoebe of the church of Sencria. And Sencria was uh, the other side of the Isthmus. Um, you had that little bit of land, and you had Corinth, and then you had uh, Sencria, and they were together. And so uh, it's likely uh, Phoebe was the one who carried the letter, because apparently she went to Rome. Um, then Paul would have given it to her there, because she was local. And that's speculation, but it's, it's, it's a possibility. Um, but then there's all kinds of connections between the Roman church and the Corinthian church, Priscilla and Aquila or one who they, Paul met them in Corinth in chapter 18, lately come from Rome, we read. And then by the time he's writing the Roman letter, he writes, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers. So um, there's all kinds of Corinthian-Roman relationships, and we'll see that in particular when we do come to chapter 16. Now something I need to say about the letter to the Romans, we went through it, how long did it take us, Tony, to get through Book of Romans? I'm not sure. I came here in 2011. 2011? In 2007. Seven. We were in chapter 5. Okay. <laughs> chapter 5 in 2007. We finished it up in 2014. Okay. Well, we took, some, we took some pauses to do other things, but it did take us a while to get through Romans. So some of you who were with us through that entire period, I'm not going over all ground. I'm not going to do this slowly. We're going to take a brisk run through the book of Romans, as well as I'm able to do brisk runs through anything, we'll do the book of Romans. Um, and what I wanted to do this morning, I thought just to give something of an introduction, that just be the easiest thing with all the things that have happened this week, and hopefully when I'm back from the uh, conference uh, in Montville, um, we'll then pick it up um, chapter by chapter. But one of the things that uh, I think is a problem that sometimes is in our thinking when we think about the book of Romans, when you think of its chapters, is especially in some of our own um, influences that have come to bear upon us as a church from um, the perspective of the Protestant Reformation, is that Romans oftentimes got viewed by Reformed theologians as if it were something of a systematic theology, something of Paul taking up various themes and subjects and so he begins with sin he moves to justification and then you have the chapter on assurance and then you have the chapter on um, union with Christ you have a chapter on um, the uh, conflict of the Christian life you have the, the Holy Spirit you have adoption you have all these things that just move through the book as if Paul was writing something of, a modern, of an ancient uh, first century systematic theology and that simply is not so. Um, Paul does move from theme to theme to theme, but we're imposing that upon the book, and I don't think that's really going to help us to understand really the flow of Paul's thought, looking to impose upon it what would be a, a more modern concern, which would be to have our doctrines clear and precise and accurate. And certainly Paul's helpful in that exercise, but it's a letter. It's a letter. And Paul's not writing a letter to set out a systematic theology. He's writing a letter to a group of people in Rome that he knew about. He had heard things about them. It was a church whose faith was spoken throughout the world. First chapter says. 
And he knew there were issues and matters that needed to be discussed. And he raises subjects that you don't find in other letters. You find it in Romans, but not in other letters. Which of his letters does he say to the Jew first and then to the Greek? It's Romans. Which is the letter in which he says things like, there is no distinction for all. I've seen them fall short of the glory of God. He repeats those things more than once. He's speaking about to a, a group that evidently there's something cultural, something ethnic, something about Jews and Gentiles that enter in to the whole picture of what he's concerned to address. And you look at the letter and you see that kind of language. Jew first, also to the Greek. There is no distinction. Well, everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, are in that same boat. Uh, and then you look at the fact that he... Um, is concerned to uh, address the subject of Israel and its failure to believe. Uh, he addresses that head on in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Did Paul just draw that out because, well, he wants to put that in in some systematic theology? No, there's evidently some attitudes in the church with reference to the Jews in which the people there perhaps were not bearing the same love he had for his own nation. And some of them were boasting against the others. And he has to tell them, be humble. If, if God cut them off because of their unbelief, you too will be cut off for your unbelief. He's, he, he's calling them to task for an attitude of pride. And then in chapters 14 and 15, you have that whole question of keeping of days and of types of diet, whether you eat meat or vegetables. And that too, I believe, is a Jewish-Gentile distinction. And he's addressing attitudes of one side judging the other, thinking you ought to be doing this because this is our freedom in Jesus to do this. This is that, that, that Paul said, well, it's time in my systematic theology to put something in about Christian liberty. So then he writes uh, chapters 14 and 15 to address the subject of, of Christian liberty. No, no, there was an issue that he had to address because he's writing to a church. He's writing to people. This letter is going to be read in the church, and Paul designs it to be um, giving matters that the church needs to hear. Now, why would the Roman church have a problem with matters of Jews and Gentiles, having something of a conflict that Paul is concerned to address? Anybody have any ideas? What would there be about the particular situation in Rome that we read about in the New Testament that might have raised this problem between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church at Rome. Anybody have any ideas offhand? Well, let's try to think it together, okay? Let's begin by uh, asking, how did the Roman church get started? Who was its founder? Well, we can know negatively who it wasn't, right? Who can tell me who it wasn't that <laughs> is principally is an important part of this discussion? Who didn't found the church at Rome? Hmm? Paul. Paul did not found the church at Rome. The church at Rome, he'd never been to Rome. He writes this letter, he's never been to Rome. He says, I often desire to come to you, but he was hindered. He never got there. And now he desires to send this letter, hoping to come to them by the will of God, hoping to impart to them some spiritual gift and to be blessed by them. That's his hope. But he had never been to Rome. He writes in the letter that he made that uh, journey all the way from Jerusalem. He made that circle to Illyricum. You know what Illyricum is? 
All you need to know is east of Rome. <laughs> he, never, he never got that far west at that point when he wrote the letter to the Romans. He never got that far west. He was in Illyricum. That's uh, somewhere in the Balkans, Serbia, the modern Serbia, Croatia. Up in that area, that's where Illyricum was. And that's where Paul made that circle from the gospel. And now he hoped, uh, through the Roman church, to be able to make another circle of gospel advance that would lead to Spain. So Paul is very geographically um, sensitive to how the gospel should get spread in the major cities of the Roman Empire. And he made one trip, and it was the church at Antioch in Syria that was the sending church and the praying church and the counseling church that he always went back to. And now he's made his way so far west at this point, and he wants to make this other circle all the way to Spain, and uh, Rome sat right in the middle of that. And so he's now looking for the church at Rome, maybe to be a supporting, sponsoring, helping church in this next advance of the Gospel West. Um, but he'd never been there. So who's, who began it? Who began it? Where do we first read of Roman, Christ, Roman people or Jews from Rome that might have become Christians? In Acts. In Acts. Good. What well, part of Acts? Towards the end. No, you got to go the other direction. Toward the beginning. Where? When Peter stood up and was preaching. The day of Pentecost. What day of Pentecost, you had Jews that gathered in Rome for the feast. And where did they come from? We'll turn to Acts chapter 2. And we read exactly where they came from. And here I am with the Bible that I'm unaccustomed to reading from. But we'll make our way to chapter 2. Of Romans, and we find in, um, well, we find now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this is where I really do need to get the glasses out. And at the sound of the multi, at this sound, the sound of the, um, the right, mush, rushing wind and the, the divided tongues and their speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. At, at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these that are speaking not Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, that's all the way to the east. They've come from Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, southeast, uh, Judea, uh, Cappadocia, you're moving up into modern Turkey, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt to the south, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. you got Roman, Roman visitors. Roman visitors have come to Jerusalem for the Feast, um, feast of Pentecost. And they heard Peter rise and speak. And this is not, these men are not drunk as you, as you think. But the, uh, he, he tells them uh, what God has done. What the, this day, this prophecy of Joel is fulfilled in your hearing. Um, God has sent his spirit. And he sent his spirit consequent upon the crucifixion of God's son. Him you took and with wicked hands you crucified him. You slew him. God raised him from the dead. And seated at the right hand of God, he has sent forth this which you see and hear. And at that, they pricked in their hearts, they're pierced in their hearts, they say, uh, what shall we do? Brethren, what shall we do? And he says, believe on the Lord, I'm sorry, that's the Philippian jailer. He says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, 
You don't think Romans were converted that day? They were there. They heard the gospel. 3,000 of them were converted. Some of them had to be some of the people that came from Rome. So what would have happened when they got back to Rome? Having heard the gospel, having come to faith in Christ, and they would just go and, I guess, study the Bible online. <laughs> they would gather together, wouldn't they? They'd assemble with one another. They'd worship. They'd carry out um, what the Jerusalem uh, church was doing. Uh, meeting steadfastly together. in apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. You've got a church that starts there. you had an assembly of Christians that begin to meet. And what would be the racial component of the church that was at Rome at that time? Largely it would be? Gentiles. Not likely. These were Jews from Rome who came to Jerusalem, heard the gospel, went back to Rome. It would be largely Gentile. There was likely some God-fearers, some Gentile people that would come and worship at the synagogue, who had an interest in the Christian, in, in, in the Jewish religion, and, and maybe some of them were baptized as well. But there would be largely people who were Jewish. So the church would begin with a large component of Jewish believers. Now, what else do we find in the book of Acts that we learn about happened in Rome? that would have affected the component of the, 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 the uh, way in which the church was uh, comprised, would have affected the membership of uh, the Christian church at Rome that at that point was largely Jewish. Again, Jewish people, God-fearers, Gentiles, yes, Gospels preached, people who had come to believe. But what, would ha- what happened to the Jews in Rome? Do anybody remember what we read? How, how, did, how did Aquila and Priscilla get to Corinth, or why? Why did, they, why did they leave Rome and go to Corinth? Chapter 18. Let's turn to chapter 18 of the book of Acts. We read that after Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's the emperor, Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, it's an interesting thing that a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, you got to hear southern preachers pronounce the name of Suetonius. Anyway, uh, I I was listening to a guy named Daryl Bach who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary and what he says Suetonius is a hoot. But um, the Roman historian Suetonius mentions that Claudius issued this edict, this decree, for the Jews to leave Rome because of uh, a, 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 a trouble that, was, that occurred in the city. There was a, I don't know if it was a riot or something near to a riot, and it was over Crestus is what he says. That's the Roman historian. Crestus, he says, is the reason they were left, they made to leave. There was a disturbance that rose over Crestus. And you think maybe Suetonius got it wrong and maybe it was Christus? I think so. I think so. I think whatever it was that the Jews were disputing about had to do with Christ. 
had to do with the Christian faith. And so there was the disturbance in the city of Rome. And, you know, remember Gallio in Corinth said he didn't care about any of these things. It's not a matter of our laws. It's a matter of your own. It's your problem. You take care of it. He didn't care about any of these matters. And uh, probably Suetonius said, we want the Pax Romana, which meant the Roman peace. The Romans came and they brought peace at the edge of a sword, of course. Wasn't exactly the kind of peace the gospel advocates and brings, but it was an enforced peace at the edge of a sword. And so when there was trouble in the city, what do you do? Well, you get the troublemakers to leave. And so he didn't make a distinction whether they were Jews or who were causing the trouble, the Christians. He, he didn't care about that. They're Jewish? Get out of here. And so for a period of time, the Jews were made to leave Rome. What would that, how would that affect the Roman church? It was a Jewish church, largely, with Gentile converts that were made. Now it becomes what? A Gentile church. Largely Gentiles are gathering. But then, um, I'm not exactly sure, it was, it was only a couple of years that that edict was in effect. I think uh, Claudius uh, was soon gone, and uh, I don't remember who succeeded him. Might have been Nero, might have been someone in between. But the uh, point of it is that when the Jews were permitted to come back to Rome, and when Paul's writing this letter, Aquila and Priscilla are back there. They're back in Rome. Jews come back. Wait a minute. They're coming back. Not coming back to the same church. Not coming back to the same church. The church we left was the church where we were in charge. We were largely the leaders. We were the converts from, from Jerusalem. We were the older Christians. We knew the law. Um, they had a greater role to play. And now they have to come back on different terms. There's probably new leadership. There's probably new people that are teaching on a regular basis. What is now their place? Do you think there would be tension? Yeah. you think there would be misunderstandings? you think there would be, especially over the ethnic differences of diet and you know, the observance of days? Um, yeah, there would be those, these problems. And so Paul's writing to a church in the midst of a situation they were in that he knew about and what he's telling them is not just well here, I'm telling you something because you know you guys, your problem is your doctrine's all wrong and you've got to get your doctrine right um, he's writing for the purposes of getting their practices right and the doctrine of course is going to impinge upon the practices, the way they see one another to rec- the recognition of justification and, 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 the, and the doctrine of sin is presented n- not just so that we can be now equipped to evangelize the world you know, go tell them what Paul told the Romans well no what Paul told the Romans was what this church needed to hear to understand there's no distinction that we all have come from the sinful, sinful roots all under sin all come on equal footing in grace to God in Christ but that's not the manual for evangelism. And again, it's the other thing that the modern church has done. We've taken Romans and we've tried to make it a systematic theology on one hand, and then we've taken Romans and we've tried to make it the manual for evangelism. So all evangelism has to be done in accordance with the book of Romans. Well, it wasn't written as an evangelism manual. And you know what? You read the book of Acts. Were they evangelizing using Romans in the book of Acts? Were they leading people down the Romans road? Did Paul come to Athens and say, now what you need to understand is, first of all, we'll begin with Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He didn't do that. 
He said, well, now the next thing we need to do is we need to tell you that uh, God commended his love towards us. Romans, was it, 5.11, that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the second point. We've got to get that in there second. And then then we have to give them assurance uh, that uh, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we've got to bring them to chapter 10, 9, 10. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Did I get the Romans road right? I think I did. That's the Romans road. That's the manual for evangelism. Except not one time is evangelism done in the book of Acts that way. Paul came to, to, to Athens and, and he said, The God that you worship in ignorance, I'm going to declare to you. God who made the world and all things that are in it. <laughs> he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands as so though he needs anything. For he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Uh, he's telling them things they need to know about God. He's telling them things they know uh, to know about God's nature, what God's like. He's not like the idols that you're worshiping. And he's addressing other issues. And the manual for evangelism is not one book, and not one book written to a church. It's the truth of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We glean the realities, the worldview, the understanding to be equipped to answer others the reason of the hope that's in us. I remember when I was first uh, when I first was saved. Oh, I was a Christian for some months, and I began to read stuff, and I began to learn stuff, and I would try to incorporate the stuff I was reading, the things I was learning, the things that were in the Bible, when I would discuss things with other people. And we had this, um, well, I met Jan at the Macaulay Water Street Mission, and uh, they would have a meal there on the weekends, on Saturday, and uh, people would come, and we'd sit at tables, and they would try to sit Christians next to um, unbelievers to, to witness and uh, the, the, the fellow that um, ran the mission, a fellow named Ken Miner, um, one day he, he asked if I'd come and, and meet with him. Did I, you know this, Jan? This story that Ken asked to meet with me? And uh, I remember going, going to his office and he was, I don't, I, don't know, he, I don't know what he ended up wanting to do or proposing, but he was just saying, you know, I don't often hear people uh, show the places in Scripture you were showing people about about the Lord. You know, the people just are very limited in the things that they say. <laughs> you go into the Psalms, you're going over here. I don't remember what, what he was pointing to. And he was saying how unusual that was. And I don't remember the rest of the conversation, but I just remembered I, was, I didn't realize that was unusual. You know, I thought you, as Christians, we learn God's word. And what we learn, we teach. Or what we learn, we look to share. Uh, and we don't have to go to some programmed method I understand the reason for those program methods. You want people to get people out on the street quickly, but get people out on the street prepared to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in them. And to do that from the perspective of the totality of the biblical teaching and the biblical witness, and not just a few things or a few verses that are taken out of context and made to fit a construct. Um, we shouldn't be doing that. Um, and again, if that's the way you evangelize, I'm not going to stop you from doing it. It's better to tell people nothing, I guess. But I'd like to see a fuller understanding of what evangelism is about. It's really meeting people where they are with the teaching of God's word and not looking to just impose upon everyone the same thing to get them saved. 
Because generally speaking, that doesn't do a very good job in the world because a lot of people have gone through that kind of evangelism and the fruits of the, the, fruits of the exercise are not, are not great. And, you know, many of us came to Christ in very vastly different ways than what the Roman road would, would advocate. Uh, the Lord brought me to faith when I heard a guy pray. <laughs> and he prayed, Lord, you are good. And my, my heart crushed, was crushed under the weight of the reality that God was good and I was not. And that's what brought me to Christ. And, you know, uh, it didn't happen in the conventional way. It didn't happen in the way that uh, the evangelism programs teach you to do it. So, so I never put much stock by that when I heard that this is the way you're supposed to do it. It's not the way God brought me to faith. Probably not the way God brought you to faith. And so, you know, I think the way we came to faith is individual. It's our own, our own journey because God met us where we were. God met us where we were, and we need to meet sinners where, where they are. Anyway, so um, those are ways we misuse the Book of Romans. Um, it's not a systematic theology. It's not a manual for evangelism. It's written to a church with special problems there in that church that Paul knew. I know we read these letters, of course, from a disadvantage. Again, I remember I quoted uh, one writer who said about the Corinthian letter, that we're reading someone else's mail. <laughs> and, you know, it's hard when you read someone else's mail and there's been a correspondence that's gone back and forth and you come in the middle, you don't know what's been said. You just have this letter to read from and you just have to suppose, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe the next thing. But I think that we, we can, I think, make a fairly firm co- conclusion that the reason Paul emphasizes Jewish-Gentile distinctions in this letter as often as he does it in no other letter is that there was this particular tension in the Roman church of Jew and Gentile that really arose from the way the church was founded largely by Jews that came on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel of Gentiles that were converted and then they became leaders when the Edict came and the Jews were gone. And then when the Jews came back, now we got to get these people on board together. Rich. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Sure. With, with what you said in mind, which I believe is true, that it's not a manual for either systematic theology or, or uh, evangelism. evangelism. When you meet a person on the street that you've never talked to before, um, how do you... Um, I'm trying to formulate my question. Mm-hmm. Without knowing where they're at, and just thinking of the, the scripture that says that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, mm-hmm. and using that as a focal point, sometimes people like myself may, may find not necessarily the Romans road, but as a starting point, to speak to people about the gospel, knowing that there are some common denominators that are true of all of us. Okay. That we've offended a righteous God. Okay. Um, without trying to use the book of Romans as a, necessarily as a manual, sometimes we may use something like a Romans 3.23 or Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And then trying to quickly, and maybe you may have only two or three minutes to bring them 
to the point of the cross. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, but I'm going to tell you this, Rich. What you're saying is because of the way you've been influenced by the current of modern evangelical evangelism. Because turn to John 16. You mentioned the spirit given to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And I think the assumption that you're making, and again, we have made this assumption because of Romans Road evangelism, that the way the Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment is it uses the law to point to them to their sin. It looks to convict them through um, the fact that you... Jew, you Gentile, like Paul says in Romans, you've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul shows the tangible ways that they've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is uh, sinning without the law, sinning with the law. Um, but here in uh, Jesus' words, and I've got to get my glasses back on in order to read it, this is not what Jesus says. Um, and where are my glasses? Did it, oh, here they are. <laughs> Okay, when he comes, verse 8 of 16, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they've broken the law and need to be convicted. Well, no. Because of sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. What's happening there? He's going to the Father through the cross in order to accomplish salvation and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged because Jesus has triumphed over sin, over death, over Satan, over all adverse adverse powers and he's enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's the gospel is that's the, really the great tool that Jesus says the Spirit uses. You know, and we're accustomed to think of the law because of how Romans goes. But Romans is written to the church. This is written to disciples prepared to go into the world with the gospel, to preach the gospel. And Jesus doesn't point to the law. He points to his, his coming. The Son of God has come, and the people of this world have not believed on him. God has entered into human history in the person of Jesus. Lights come into the world, and men have preferred the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. And what brings that conviction that our deeds are evil? Is it that you've not uh, kept the Sabbath day holy? No. Is that you've rejected the Son of God? It's unbelief. They believe not on me. The one whom they should have believed in, who gave evidence to his identity through the works that he did and the miracles that he wrought. It's, it's Jesus that's the center of gospel teaching and preaching in the book of Acts. His death and resurrection, his lordship, him being exalted but the right hand of God, he shed forth this which you see and hear. The great confession, again, even Romans 10, 9, 10, is if we confess with our mouths, not that I'm a miserable sinner worthy of damnation, but if we confess with our, and of course we are, I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that's not what the saving confession is. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you take that and you put that into a Roman culture. What does Jesus as Lord mean in a Roman culture? In a culture where they say, 
Not Christos Kyrios, Jesus uh, is Lord, or, or Jesus uh, Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. They say, um, Kaiser, Caesar, Caesar's the Lord. And they're saying, no, Caesar's not the Lord. <laughs> Jesus is the Lord, and he's ascended to the throne of the universe. And before him, every knee must bow and every tongue confess. It's a proclamation of Christ. I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him is crucified. And to me, I got convicted of my sin by somebody praying that God is good. That doesn't square with, you know, uh, I guess the old Puritan understanding that we have to do the work of the law. Right. The work of the law is needful. It's needful for the people of God. We have to have proper moral and ethical distinctions. But the world needs to know God's come into history. God's, God's not indifferent. He's not unconcerned about human humanity. He's come on a mission of mercy to the lost and fallen world. I want to tell that guy on the streets that uh, I want to tell him John 3.16 for instance. I want to tell them that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him and what a crime not to believe in him. God sent his son and, and to me that's the thing that breaks, breaks the heart that we don't believe in this great act of love that God has demonstrated in sending Christ into the world. Go ahead. I don't want to dominate. No, that's okay. I do have some questions about this because I've recently done some street evangelism mm-hmm. with another brother at Englewood. And what you said is absolutely true that we need to use the whole Bible and not just try to use a few verses in Romans. Mm-hmm. But when we have like two or three minutes, let's say, to mm-hmm. talk to somebody... What would the right in, approach be in light of what you were saying um, to quickly bring a person to the, um, well, John 3.16, for instance. But the, the other issue is what I have found in my limited time in talking to people in Englewood is that most people will profess Christ to some degree, maybe half, and like, for instance, there was a guy who was, I was talking to a few weeks ago, who was smoking a joint, as he's professing yeah. to be a believer. And he may, be, he may have been yeah. a believer, yeah. but there were, I don't know. I, I, got, I got where you're going. Let me, let me just say, for the sake of time, I got where you're going. Okay. I'd want them to know two things. Okay. I'd, I'd want them to know Christ is Lord. Okay. But the corollary to that is, you are not. You are not. And you're living as if you are Lord. And what God requires is that every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not you. You're not Lord. The girl you're living with is not Lord. This joint you're smoking is not Lord. The booze you're guzzling is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I think that's what people need to hear. And you're bringing in sin. But you're bringing in sin through their unbelief. You're bringing in sin because they've rejected Christ. They might not even be aware of it, but they live in a a society that's told them a lot about Jesus. And and they're still pursuing their own idols. And the call of the gospel is to turn from their idols. And it's not the specificity of our sins. I gotta convict you of being a Sabbath breaker or a wife beater or and I mean, but if you are, you're gonna get you're gonna get convicted. But the reality is you are you are all these things because of what you are as an idolater who's really rejected 
the lordship of the son of God who really is the king of the universe and you're not and so to me that's uh, if I just have a few minutes and if I, I, that's why I would want people to go away th- thinking that Jesus is lord and I'm not and I, what, am, what are you going to do with that um, but thank you thank you but uh, yeah I think that uh, you know I I, I <laughs> I'll just tell you this uh, uh, in recent years maybe this was personal to me but I've been under and you've been under some of the most convicting preaching you could ever hear in the whole world <laughs> the kind of preaching that will cause you just to shrivel up and um, you can get shriveled up and not change a bit you can get humbled you can get bitter tears you can get all kinds of feelings of remorse and not change a bit because the law is not designed to change you only one person can change you that's Jesus the law is just to point it out what's that? the law is just to point it out the law points it out but it doesn't doesn't help you the law doesn't help you as a Christian you know, I think of uh, Romans, talking about Romans, Romans 7. Romans is a good, good, good place to go. Because Paul uses this illustration of marriage. He says we were married to the law. Imagine that, having the law as your husband, the law as your wife. You're, you're dwelling in intimate relationship with the law. You're, you're married to the law. And what does the law do? It bosses you around. It tells you, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then you're sitting there stunned. Oh man, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then you, you go to your husband, you go to your wife. Law. Husband, law. Thank you for telling me what to do. Could you help me, law? Can you give me help to do the things you demand of me? And the law says, what? Help you? I'm not here to help you. I'm not here to lift a single finger to do anything to help you. And Paul says, we died to the law that we might be what? Married to another, even he who was raised from the dead. So now, we're really in the same position we were before. This law hasn't changed. The law still is what the law is. But now the law is no longer our husband because we, we've died to the law. A death has taken place. The law hasn't died. The law still lives. But we died. We died to the law through another death that took place, the death of Jesus, who died for us and rose again from the dead. And he becomes our husband. And we say, and Jesus still says, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. If you love me, keep my commandments. And then we say, Lord Jesus help me and he says Rich that's exactly what I'm here to do I'm at the right hand of the majesty on high to help you Um, so I think that's to me the the difference it's not that we deny anything to do with the law and its requirements but just we recognize the only thing that's going to help us is Christ the gospel and as believers that's where we have to go and so often we get caught up with law demand 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 and we just get tuckered out, we get wearied out, and, and not helped, and not helped. But coming to Christ, that's the aid, that's where we need to be, ever 
looking to God through him. Um, he, you know, we, we, we saw in prayer, I think I'm going to say something about it in the morning service, but with respect to prayer, and Jesus says the time's going to come when you're going to uh, um, ask, I'm sorry, um, well, I do not say I'm going to ask the Father, but you're going to ask the Father in my name, for the Father loves you because you believed in me. You know, God takes delight in his children who, who look to Jesus. We believe in him. And Jesus is the place that we look. And I, I preached this a couple of weeks ago that the Old Testament believers, when they would pray to, to Yahweh, their God, when, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, remember Solomon prayed a prayer in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. And he says, when your people are in trouble, when the you know, enemies have taken them captive, if they turn and they look to this place, this place where your name is known, your, God's name is in this temple, then you hear, not from the temple, you hear from heaven. He's asking God to hear from heaven people who address their prayers to where God's name is in his temple. Now, the temple in, G- in John's gospel becomes Jesus. Destroy this body or this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. And, the, and, and, and of course they said 35 years this temple was being constructed. You're going to raise it up in three days? And of course after his resurrection they remembered he's this saying and, and they understood. Jesus is talking about his body. Destroy my body. In three days I will raise it. The body of Jesus is the temple of God. In him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so when Jesus, their temple, was with them, with the disciples, he would pray for them. They would ask him personally. Now he's going. He's going to be in, in heaven. But he's going to be in heaven as the temple where God's name is. And so that's where we come to God through faith in Christ and believing in, in Christ through him and his name. We say this in your name. Because that's where God's name is. God's name is not on an earthly temple. It's in the heavenly temple at his right hand and God has regard to those that trust in the place where his presence is known and his presence is manifested. And I, I've thought that through the last couple of weeks and just prayed in that way, consciously, Lord, your name is in Christ. Your name is revealed in that heavenly temple. And I come to you because I believe in the one who has come uh, with the fullness, the, the one who it, 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 it says that... Um, the word, the word was made flesh and was manifested among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father is full of grace and truth. The glory of God is in Christ. And the glory of God is now at the right hand of, of the majesty on high. And, and, I, and I, I'm confident that God's going to hear me because I trust his son. I trust the one in whom his name is manifested. And so, though in myself I'm not worthy of a single consideration... There's one mighty at the right hand of the majesty on high who is where God's presence is, his temple is, his name is. And when I come to God in his name, God regards my cries. He hears my prayers. And that has just energized my, 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 my prayer life. It got me through yesterday. I was <laughs> the crumble yesterday. And I got through yesterday just having that perspective. There's one mighty at the right hand of the majesty on high and he... God's name is in him. God's presence is in him. I pray to that holy temple in Jesus. And God hears my prayers. And I can have that certainty. Just like the Jew of the Old Covenant could have that certainty. That that temple, God's there. God's presence, God's name is there. God's name is, is there. And we have access to his name. We have access to his presence.
we draw near to Christ, God's holy temple. And so that's true of the Christian life, and that's true with evangelism as well. We gotta, we gotta put our. I mean, it's like, it's like the Green Bay Packers uh, benching. What's the guy's name? Aaron Rodgers. I was gonna say Brett Favre. I might have even said Bart Starr for all my memory goes. <laughs> but you imagine the Green Bay Packers benching their best resource. That's like we are when we look to evangelize without Jesus, not putting Jesus front and central center. We're taking our, our greatest strength as, as believers and we're putting it to the bench and say, okay, Jesus, you can sit on the bench. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tr- 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 trudge out the law. <laughs> I'm going to get people to become Christians by, uh, by telling them about the law. Again, I'm not saying don't tell them about the law, but get Christ front and center. Best resource, best, best aid in Christian living and in Christian witness. So that's just my... Own, uh, you know, convictions in the last few years. That's really more where we need to be, I think. Anyway, for what that's worth, I hope it's helpful. Let's pray. To you. Oh, yes, Sue. I'm just going to say, on the other side of that coin of hearing heavy, you know, law preaching, um, we we can But you know, we're not looking for the saving confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're looking for some prayer. You pray a prayer along with me. I'll give you the words. And you just pray it. You just mean it. And that's what we tell people. And that's just simply, that doesn't save anybody. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they bowed the knee. I mean, you know, there may be people that do that absolutely sincerely, but how many don't? How many just do it because you've asked them to do it? How many people buy, buy the vacuum cleaner where the salesman comes and gives them a, a, great, a great pitch and then the next day says, please come, take the vacuum back and uh, give me back my money. <laughs> and that's what so much of this Christian salesmanship of Jesus is about. The people might buy uh, under the pressure, but the next day they're looking to give it back. <laughs> we want Jesus to close the deal, not our persuasiveness. So anyway, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can spend time considering these matters that do perplex the, the modern church, have long perplexed many of us in many ways. And we ask, Lord, that we would have a, a Bible-centered view of, of, of evangelism, but also uh, a view of the letters of the Bible that are sensitive to their context and the things that were going on, and, and not just using these letters for our own reasons. We pray we would be submissive to your word of truth that will ever and again bring us to Jesus, ever and again bring us to the great realities that are bound up in the one who is our Lord and Savior. So we thank you for this time. Pray you'd give us to think upon these things, give us understanding in them, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.